Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we will dive deep into the powerful chronicles of Anne Frank's life as she narrates her poignant experiences in The Diary of a Young Girl. Originally published in 1952, this book presents an astonishing account of a young, maturing girl caught in the desolate times of World War II, yet rising to the occasion. Her secret diary unfolds her deepest thoughts, vivid dreams, and innocent perceptions that tragically ended with the devastating Holocaust. Anne Frank, born on June 12, 1929 in Frankfurt, Germany, was a promising talent tragically lost to the grim Holocaust. Her family moved to the Netherlands in 1933, seeking refuge from the anti-Semitic hostility escalating under Adolf Hitler's regime. Unable to escape the country, Anne and her family found themselves in hiding by 1942. Her diary, a heartfelt testament of her journey, has since been Anne's enduring legacy to the world. The Diary of a Young Girl is an essential read for those who find fascination in the stories of life during wartime, individuals who admire the relentless spirit of survival and young women in search of inspirational figures. Join us in this episode as we explore this timeless testament of courage, resilience, and the unyielding human spirit. The Diary of a Young Girl The famous story of a Jewish girl who went into hiding during the Second World War. Introduction A Revelation from History glimpse into the life of a young girl during the Holocaust. The diary of a young girl pulls back the curtain to a chilling reality of World War II, unfolding the tale of the Frank family and four other individuals living in hidden confinement. These stories are not told by an omniscient narrator, but instead brought to life through the heartfelt journal entries of a wise beyond her years, Anne Frank. In her diaries, Anne illustrates the intricacies of life in hiding, highlighting its delicate and transient nature while simultaneously drawing attention to the resilience and inspiration born out of such circumstances. Every year, countless individuals flock to the city of Amsterdam, drawn to the quiet building that once housed Anne Frank. It isn't just architecture they seek but a chance to pay homage to the young girl whose diary has emerged as one of the most impactful literary works of the 20th century. As Anne's thoughts, dreams, and experiences echo across the years, they offer a somber reflection of the invaluable lives cut short by the war. As we delve into the depth of Anne's world, we'll uncover the harsh realities of life for Jewish families in war-torn Europe, the power of love, blossoming in the most unlikely places. The incredible journey of a teenager's diary on its path to becoming a global bestseller. Part 1. A journey from a carefree schoolgirl to a girl concealed from the world. Imprinted on the pages of Anne Frank's diary, we find the innocent musings of a 13-year-old girl dated June 12, 1942. As she candidly declares, I hope I will be able to confide everything to you, as I have never been able to confide in anyone. These words indicate the commencement of an extraordinary relationship between a teenager and her diary, 
a gift she had just received on her birthday. Anne's diary starts with a celebration as she joyfully documents her presence. A new blouse, blooming flowers, an intriguing puzzle, a book voucher, among other precious tokens of affection showered by her doting parents. During that summer in 1942, Anne resided in Amsterdam with her family, her parents and her older sister Margot. The family led an ordinary life, with her father diligently serving as the director of the Dutch Opecta Company, which dealt in the production of spices and related food products. Anne's diary entries at the onset primarily revolve around her school life, friendships, and everyday teenage matters. Yet her wise beyond-years persona subtly surfaces as she pens down a thoughtful saying on June 20, 1942. Paper has more patience than people. As she divulges her feelings of loneliness and her yearning for a true confidant in her diary, she also highlights the mounting pressure born out of the anti-Jewish laws implemented by Hitler. These harrowing rules inflicted on Jewish people, the necessity to wear yellow stars, the prohibition on riding bicycles, driving cars or using trams, the ban on engaging in sports in public, and the stringent shopping hours, stifled their everyday life and reduced their existence to mere survival. Amid the escalating tensions, Anne found solace in scribbling about her school experiences, her escalating grades, her sweet camaraderie with a boy named Hello Silberberg, and her affection towards Peter Schiff. However, the light-hearted entries took a grim turn in early July, when the Frank family received an ominous call-up notice from the SS, a forewarning of impending doom, signifying the recipient might soon be locked behind bars or end up in a dreaded concentration camp. Initially, Anne believed the notice was meant for her father, only to discover that the ill-fated recipient was her sister, Margot. Swift actions followed as the family packed their belongings hurriedly, bestowing some of them to friends for safekeeping. They were bracing themselves to step into a life in hiding. The chosen place of concealment was a hidden section in the Opecta building where her father worked. Discreetly tucked away behind the second floor, it was a door that ushered them into what is now widely recognized as the secret annex. Part 2. Life within the unseen confines of the secret annex. The seclusion within the secret annex was shared by the Franks and another family, the Van Dans, who moved in a week later. The Van Dans, referred to as such in the diary, Anne uses pseudonyms, consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Van Dan and their teenage son, Peter. Mr. Van Dan was a professional associate of Otto Frank, Anne's father. Only a handful of people working at Opecta were privy to the clandestine annex and its inhabitants. They included Mr. Kleiman and Mr. Kugler, who managed the company, and two secretaries, Hermine and Elizabeth, affectionately addressed as Miep and Bep in Anne's diary entries. These individuals would routinely liaise with the Frank and Van Dan families, serving as their solitary link to the outside world and ensuring they had access to essential commodities like food, books, and other supplies. The secret annex, concealed behind a bookcase-mounted door, comprised two rooms connected through a steep staircase. One room belonged to Mr. and Mrs. Frank, and the adjoining one was shared by Anne and Margot. In addition to these rooms, there was a lavatory and another compact room 
housing only a sink on the same floor. The annex's final floor, positioned further upstairs, boasted a large space doubling as a kitchen and a general living-come-study area for everyone. This room also served as Mr. and Mrs. Van Dan's sleeping quarters. Peter found his solitary refuge in a small adjacent room, and a loft attic space was utilized for storing supplies. Despite not being significantly constrained, living within the annex wasn't without its challenges. Strict regulations dictated their lives. Anne and her father swiftly set to work, crafting blackout curtains for the windows, which were to remain shut for as long as possible. Peering out the windows was strictly prohibited. Water usage and toilet flushing had to be planned around off-working hours to avoid detection by the workers below. Even slight sound emissions, be it from the radio or a bout of coughing, could spell doom for their concealed existence. Stepping outside was a luxury none within the annex could afford, making their gratitude for their irregular and damp habitat quite poignant. But amidst this gratitude, the omnipresent fear of discovery, of being captured and executed on sight, cast a pall of constant anxiety over their unusual living conditions. Reflecting on her life within the walls of the annex just a few months into hiding, Anne acknowledged two key concerns the deprivation of open air and the looming threat of their hidden life being unearthed at any moment. Part 3 Confined Space Breeding Diversified Opinions Privacy was a scarce luxury within the annex, with the best prospect being a fleeting moment of solitude in the lavatory. The time Anne spent articulating her thoughts in her diary often offered her a brief respite, an oasis of tranquility amidst the prevailing turmoil. Her diary entries frequently echo the strains that everyone grappled with, given their forced coexistence within close quarters. A month following her birthday, on July 12th, Anne expresses the emotional rift gradually widening between her and her mother and sister. Her diary reverberates with feelings of being misunderstood, with her father being the sole exception, the only one who seemed to comprehend her. She perceived herself as the outcast in the family, continually subjected to undue criticism, trivialization, and inequity. Recalling an incident, Anne elucidates how Margot once accidentally damaged the vacuum cleaner by abruptly pulling its cord, which consequentially blew the light fuse, plunging the annex into a day-long blackout. Surprisingly, Margot's only admonishment was being told she should have been more careful. Contrastingly, when Anne attempted to rectify her mother's illegible handwriting on the shopping list, the entire family ganged up against her, reprimanding her for her intervention. Anne registers how her family would often discuss their harmonious relationships with each other, failing to acknowledge or consider Anne's actual sentiments about their familial dynamics. Initially, Anne was eager for July 13th, the day the Van Downs were slated to move into the annex. During the initial few weeks, the merging of the two families seemed unproblematic. Anne didn't particularly warm up to Peter, dismissing him as overly reserved. However, Mrs. Van Dan provided ample entertainment from the get-go. She arrived carrying a chamber pot nestled within a hatbox, hilariously justifying it by confessing, I just don't feel at home without my chamber pot. Yet, as time wore on, the seemingly peaceful coexistence was marred by frequent disagreements, 
primarily between Mr. and Mrs. Van Dahn, who bickered incessantly over petty issues. Further adding to the awkwardness was the brewing tension between Mrs. Van Dahn and Mrs. Frank, which often stemmed from the former's disparagement of contemporary parenting methods. This included permitting teenagers to read adult books and disregarding the importance of modesty in a young woman's upbringing. When Mrs. Frank concurred with Mr. Van Dan's assertion that modesty wouldn't necessarily lead to success in the world, Mrs. Van Dan couldn't hold back. Her face turning a bright shade of red in annoyance, she fervently condemned such modern child-rearing ideas, specifically those encouraging Anne against embracing modesty. The amusing irony was Mrs. Van Don's ardent insistence on her own modesty and her denial of being overly assertive, oblivious to her contradictory behavior at that moment. Mrs. Frank's laughter in response only intensified Mrs. Van Dan's aggravated crimson blush. Part 4. Navigating Daily Pressures, Healthcare and Sustenance When you're obliged to share a confined space with the same individuals each day, tensions are bound to surface. Yet, certain everyday factors could potentially exacerbate the overall sense of apprehension and instability. Health and nutrition were two such perennial worries that could not be easily managed or controlled. In late October 1942, Otto Frank, Anne's father, was stricken with a suspected case of measles. The incident served as a harsh reminder of their delicate circumstances where consulting a doctor was not an option. All Anne could do was hope her mother's remedy, helping him sweat out the fever, would work. As time elapsed, every bout of coughing, every cold, measles, flu, became grounds for alarm. Medical essentials like aspirin, codeine, and valerian drops turned into invaluable resources. Meanwhile, their meals hovered between monotonous and uncertain. It wasn't unusual for one or two abundant ingredients to dominate their breakfast, lunch, and dinner menus. Potatoes frequently made it to every meal, albeit sometimes in a considerably decayed state. During a particularly grim phase, lettuce was the only accessible vegetable. Hence, they had to resort to consuming lettuce in every conceivable form, boiled, raw, and served alongside putrid-tasting potatoes. The Franks and the Van Dans relied on black market ration coupons to procure their food. However, the prices of these ration books were erratic. Their loyal friends committed to obtaining and delivering food back to the families. But the financial strain was ever-present. Birthdays and holidays were rare exceptions to their dietary woes. On such occasions, they would allow themselves some indulgences. The annex inhabitants would preserve some of their sugar to bake something sweet or set aside a pot of yogurt as a gift. Bep and Miep would also contribute, often arriving with food presents such as a bottle of beer for each adult. Nevertheless, procuring food came with its own set of risks. Take, for instance, hauling a 50-pound bag of beans up a staircase, a daunting task in itself. And when the bag splits open, sending the beans tumbling down the stairs, the ensuing noise is deafening. Anne's diary entry, dated November 9, 1942, narrates such an incident when Peter was carrying a bag to the attic, which split open, releasing a flood of beans down the stairs. The others in the house mistook the noise for the building collapsing. The aftermath had them recovering stray beans for days on end. Thankfully, the bean incident didn't trigger any additional alarms. By mid-November, 
Mr. Frank had recuperated, marking his recovery with the arrival of another resident in the annex. Part 5. Welcoming an Unexpected Roommate By November, after several months of cohabitation in the secret annex, the inhabitants mutually agreed that they could accommodate one more individual. The world outside was teeming with countless people desperately seeking sanctuary. Hence, the Vandans and the Franks engaged in a discussion to decide who should be the lucky recipient of this opportunity. Eventually, they arrived at a consensus to offer the spot to Albert Dussel, a dentist. Dussel, a man of calm disposition and friendly demeanor, seemed like the ideal addition to the annex. Subsequently, Margot was relocated to a folding bed upstairs, vacating her shared room with Anne to make space for Mr. Dussel. Mr. Dussel stepped into the annex around November 17th. Upon arrival, he was greeted by a heartwarming sight. The Franks and the Van Dans assembled around the dinner table, welcoming him with a cup of coffee and a shot of cognac. Surprisingly, Dussel revealed that their cover story had been accepted. The common belief was that the Franks had successfully traversed the border and were currently stationed somewhere in Belgium. As the initial bewilderment wore off, he shared distressing updates about several mutual acquaintances who had been apprehended by the SS. He narrated tales of nightly raids, where the SS would go door-to-door, armed with lists, asking for specific individuals and detaining entire families. From her vantage point in the annex, Anne had observed groups of people being herded by the SS. She saw men, women, children, the infirm and the aged being escorted down the streets, some of them beaten until they could barely trudge on. In her diary, Anne admitted to occasionally laughing and subsequently being racked with guilt. It seemed inconceivable to laugh while her friends could potentially be in grave danger or worse. However, how could she spend her days drowning in tears? Despite her attempts, the looming fear for her fate and the fate of her loved ones was an ever-present concern. Yet, she remained determined to prevent the secret annex from spiraling into a hub of desolation. As they soon discovered, Mr. Dussel was not as affable as he initially seemed. The initial few days of harmonious coexistence eventually gave way to his disciplinarian and lecturing demeanor. He even started providing unsolicited reports of Anne's misconduct to Mrs. Frank. Each time Mr. Dussel reprimanded her, Anne could anticipate a subsequent reprimand from her mother. Anne started referring to Mr. Dussel by the moniker His Excellency. Anne described her nights spent ruminating over her alleged misdemeanors and exaggerated shortcomings. The list was so extensive that she was often torn between laughter and tears. She was acutely aware of her imperfections and earnestly wanted to enhance her character. However, the relentless criticism directed towards her seemed unjust. Nevertheless, not everything was bleak. Hanukkah and St. Nicholas Day were just around the corner. Part 6. A Persistent Cloak of Fear. Noises and Break-Ins. Inhabiting the annex came with its set of perennial anxieties. First, the fear of generating noise that would draw unwanted attention from the warehouse workers during the day. Second, the constant threat of burglaries. As the war raged on, Amsterdam City was plagued with a mounting number of break-ins. Many citizens dared not to leave their homes, fearing that they might return to find their belongings pilfered.
Naturally, an establishment such as Opetka, with its isolated warehouse and office premises, was particularly vulnerable to such incidents. One of the earliest break-ins transpired around March 25, 1943. It was nighttime, and Peter descended the stairs to share hushed news about a toppled barrel and suspicious sounds of someone fumbling with the warehouse door with Mr. Frank. Coincidentally, Mr. Van Dan had been suffering from an obstinate cough that night. So while Peter and Mr. Frank stealthily ventured downstairs to investigate the disturbance, the rest of the household strived to suppress their alarm with each resounding cough from Mr. Van Dan. Eventually, they decided to administer codeine to Mr. Van Dan, effectively quelling the disruptive coughing. Anxiety gnawed at Anne as she dreaded the possibility that Peter and her father might not return. However, they eventually did return. The mere sound of footsteps descending the stairs had apparently been sufficient to deter the potential burglars. Unfortunately, this incident would not be the last of its kind. In an entry dated May 2, 1943, Anne expressed the daily strain of navigating the myriad noises emanating from inside the building and the perpetual soundtrack of guns and bombs from the outside world. As months rolled by, the war-fueled sounds of gunfire and bombings escalated, and the summer of 1943 brought with it an unbearable heat. Despite the sweltering conditions, the annex inhabitants continued to burn their trash, so as to avoid leaving any evidence for the warehouse staff to find. To distract herself from these adversities, Anne sought solace in writing. She penned not only in her diary, but also worked on various stories. She was particularly proud of her fairy tale, Eva's Dream, and while she thought her story, Katie's Life, had its merits, she deemed it nothing special. Gradually, she started harboring ambitions of pursuing journalism. Regardless of whether she could establish a viable career in writing, she was determined to continue writing as a hobby. The thought of leading a life like her mother or Mrs. Van Dan, women who toiled day in and day out and whose efforts were eventually forgotten, was unimaginable to her. Anne firmly believed that writing was her divine gift. She was confident that she would utilize this talent to express herself and create a lasting impact on the world. Part 7. Adolescence Blooms in the Secrecy of the Annex As one sifts through the insightful and poignant entries in Anne's diary, it's impossible to overlook her swift maturity within the confines of the secret annex. This growth extended beyond the onset of her puberty while in hiding. Her writings bear testament to her relentless introspection and her desire to adopt a more considerate demeanor despite her extraordinary circumstances. Throughout the winter of 1943, leading into 1944, Anne developed an understanding attitude towards Mrs. Van Dan and her parents. She began to realize that perhaps Mrs. Van Dan wasn't so difficult to deal with if one exercised a bit of patience and refrained from harboring unreasonable expectations. Although Anne struggled to view her mother as an ideal role model, she learned to curb her negativity and appreciate the efforts her parents had made for her. She started acknowledging that her behavior might have been contributing to the strained relationship with her mother. This period also marked Anne's sexual awakening, particularly her evolving feelings for Peter. 
Initially perceived as a lethargic and dull boy, Peter eventually became a person of great interest to Anne. Their relationship grew through small talks and shared moments with Mushi, a cat residing in the attic who was notorious for infesting the house with fleas. Peter's affection for Mushi allowed Anne to view him in a new light, a complex individual trapped between his warring parents, someone who was in need of a comforting ear, someone like Anne. Anne assumed that Peter saw her as just an immature chatterbox, much like everyone else did. On January 6, 1944, she expressed her yearning for Peter to see beyond the surface and acknowledge the intricate human within, just like she did. In her diary she wrote about gazing into his eyes, beyond the veneer of masculinity, discovering a shy and unsure boy who stirred her affections. However, she wasn't in love with Peter. At least, not at that point. The blossoming of their relationship was gradual. Initially, they shared space in the attic, eventually progressing to sitting close, arms draped around each other. Nighttime conversations, basked in moonlight and hushed whispers, became effortless. They found solace in confiding their deepest thoughts and fears in each other, away from the harsh scrutiny of daylight. Yet, time seemed to inch by at an agonizingly slow pace. In April, Anne confessed her desire to kiss Peter to her diary. She wondered if he shared her feelings or merely saw her as a friend. After spending 21 long months in the annex, Anne finally had her first real kiss on April 16, 1944, a day she fondly termed as a red-letter day. What followed was the challenge of revealing their relationship to their parents. Part 8. The Dual Personas of Anne Alongside her devoted diary writing and her indulgence in creative pursuits, Anne remained committed to her studies during her time in the secret annex. She continued her learning journey with subjects like French and English and even faced the daunting challenge of algebra. History was her favorite subject and she was particularly captivated by genealogical charts. She even delved into a hefty 598-page book on Charles V and a 320-page tome on Galileo. But deep down, she yearned for her school days. A glimmer of hope sparked on June 6, 1944, when the radio announced, This is D-Day, the day that marked the beginning of the long-awaited invasion by the Allied forces. After two grueling years in hiding, the day everyone had been yearning for had finally arrived. A week later, Anne celebrated her 15th birthday. By the end of June, morale was at an all-time high. Parts of France were being reclaimed by the Allies. Then came a deluge of strawberries, delivered in bulk to the annex. Strawberries for breakfast, with porridge. Strawberries with bread and buttermilk. Strawberries preserved in jars. And as if that wasn't enough. 20 pounds of pea pods arrived. Anne and others worked tirelessly, peeling them. The monotonous cycle of snapping the end, stripping the pod, pulling the string, and tossing the pod into the pan seemed never-ending. They were all nauseated by the end of the tedious task, but it solidified Anne's resolve never to succumb to the life of a housewife. Meanwhile, her relationship with Peter plateaued. What began as a romantic venture gradually settled into a warm friendship. Goodnight kisses were still exchanged, and mutual affection was present. Yet, Peter's perceived limitations and apathy 
discouraged Anne. She saw Peter's old habits of laziness resurface, and she couldn't fathom it. His nonchalant remarks about resorting to a life of crime post-war unsettled Anne. She struggled to comprehend why someone would choose the easier path or surrender to their flaws without putting up a fight. She was fully aware of her own weaknesses, but they only fueled her determination to strive for change and overcome them. In an entry dated August 1, 1944, Anne wrote about her dual self-perception. One was the frivolous, light-hearted Mary Anne that people perceived and dismissed, and the other was the better, deeper, kinder Anne that froze when under scrutiny. Not everyone saw this deeper Anne, but she was the driving force behind her actions. Anne was fiercely committed to integrating this quieter, good part of herself into her exterior persona. This moment of introspection marks the end of her diary, leaving us with her unfinished journey of self-improvement. On August 4, 1944, a vehicle filled with SS officials arrived at 263 Prinzengracht, arresting everyone in the secret annex and their helpers, Victor Kugler and Johannes Kleiman. The secretaries, Miep Gies and Elizabeth Voskiel, were spared from the arrest. Part 9. A Ripple That Started a Wave Once everyone was whisked away, Miep Gies hastily scrambled to the annex, managing to save a few remnants, Anne's diary being amongst them. She clung to hope. Once the war was over, she'd return Anne her diary. The captives from the secret annex were initially imprisoned in Amsterdam, before being ferried to a transit camp in Westerbrook, in the northern Netherlands. On September 3, 1944, their journey took a grim turn as they were loaded onto a train bound for Auschwitz, marking the last transport to depart Westerbrook. In the deathly grip of Auschwitz, the families were torn apart. Hermann van Pels, calling himself Mr. Van Daan, succumbed to the Auschwitz gas chambers in late 1944. His wife, Petronella van Pels, lost her life bouncing between different concentration camps. Similarly, Peter van Pels, thrown into the horrifying death march from Auschwitz to Mauthausen camp, perished just three days before Allied forces arrived. Fritz Pfeffer, known in the annex as Albert Dussel, succumbed at the Neuengamme camp towards the end of 1944. Meanwhile, Anne's mother, Edith Frank, sighed her last breath in the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp in early 1945, her life stolen by starvation and exhaustion. Anne and her sister Margot were whisked from Auschwitz to the Bergen-Belsen camp in late October 1944. The sisters fell to a typhus outbreak that ravaged the camp the following winter, dying within days of each other. It's widely believed that their remains lie in an anonymous mass grave on the campgrounds. The camp would later be liberated by British soldiers on April 12, 1945. The sole survivor of the annex was Otto Frank, Anne's father. He witnessed the arrival of Russian troops at Auschwitz and found his way back to Amsterdam by mid-1945. Though he was aware of his wife's fatal fate, he fostered hope that his daughters had survived. Yet Miep Gies met him with Anne's diary in hand and a profound statement, Here is your daughter's legacy to you. Otto's journey through his daughter's thoughts and experiences was an emotionally tumultuous one. 
He chronicled in his memoirs how he couldn't read more than a few pages a day without tears welling up. What he read, though, astonishingly revealed a complex and precocious teenager with an exceptional gift for heartfelt writing, breaking away from his perception of Anne as a child. Initially, Otto intended to share the diary only with close family and friends. However, Anne's mention of publishing a book titled The Secret Annex swayed him. He began dispatching copies of the diary to publishers. After an array of rejections, the diary finally made a modest debut in print under the title The Secret Annex in June 1947. But it wasn't until 1952, when it was published in America, that the diary truly made its mark, rapidly gaining international acclaim. Throughout the years, the diary has seldom been out of print, inspiring multitudes of theatre and film adaptations. Anne's story has resonated with generations to come, motivating them to raise their voices against the horrors of war and champion human rights. Anne fervently believed in the triumph of human kindness, a belief that continues to resonate around the globe. Final summary. Between 1942 and 1944, Anne Frank, barely a teenager, found herself sequestered in a tiny annex with her family, the Van Pels, Mr. and Mrs. Van Pels and their adolescent son, Peter, and dentist Fritz Pfeffer, eight souls in all, barely scraping out a clandestine existence. Anne navigated the roller coaster of emotions, facing all the trials and tensions of being confined with others. But amidst this chaos, adulthood beckoned and maturity ensued. As Anne grappled with her growing disconnect with her family, she leveled with herself, acknowledging her role in the strains amongst them, and vowed to reinvent herself. Her aspirations never wavered. She kept her education at the forefront despite the circumstances, and even experienced the whirlwind of adolescent romance with Peter. All the while, she lived under the yoke of a perpetual threat, the risk of their hidden sanctuary being blown apart. Yet Anne's spirit was indefatigable. Her flame of hope remained unquenchable. While her life was brutally cut short, her dreams of wielding the power of the pen bloomed powerfully. She all too certainly influenced the world, leaving behind a legacy that continues to inspire and resonate with generations present and future. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then. Happy reading and happy listening.